Welcome to the... What? Welcome to the what? Welcome to the weekly dive... What? A weekly deep dive podcast on the Add-On Education Network. The podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here with my friend and the show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey. Yeah, before we dive too much into this episode... Um, We've, we've kind of been looking around at our audience and just kind of blown away at how this thing's taken off. I mean, we're we're coming up on two months here on March 10th that we've been publishing episodes of the show. And I, I, we noticed that there's these cities like in, in Nigeria, in India, that just really started listening to the show and, and, and building these audiences, these small groups. And, and I was a little confused at, at what was going on out there. Where, where, where are we attracting these people? How are they finding us? Where are they coming from? And so as I was typing some of these cities in and then um, and trying to make the connection, I'd, I'd put LDS in the Google search next to the name of the city. And, and sure enough, th- there are cities where we've announced temples are going to be built. And they're little strongholds of faith that, you know, it's to me, it's fascinating to see the thirst or the interest in people out there that are just searching. Because I don't think our podcast is necessarily the easiest to find right now. It's a new show, but so thirsty or so wanting to know more or learn more that they're finding and discovering these obscure sources and, and tuning in. So It's very cool. It's very cool. And and for those of you listening in those cities, like, thank you. Like, that's awesome. And and like Jason said, we're, we're really blown away with kind of like the legs that this podcast has already started getting. And when we see cool, unique places around the world pop up and not just like the cities that our parents live in, you know, <laughs> or whatever, it's, it's nice that more than just, oh, I mean, I don't even know, maybe my parents don't even listen to this. Who knows? I probably should give them the heads up. But it's, it's cool. It's cool when you see places like Nepal, you know, like a little branch in Nepal has started listening. And, and like you said, some, some cities in various countries in the Middle East and things like that. It's just like, oh, that's that's amazing and thank you for listening you know for those of you well for for all of you thank you for listening but especially those that you know are kind of having to probably try to find it's probably harder for them to find it than it would be for you know people here in our wards or whatever kind of locally yeah and out there in nepal i, I believe it was Kathmandu. We, we we picked up a lot of followers out there and i'm sorry if i'm saying this wrong i i really want to avoid saying too many cities where i'm not sure how to pronounce it and feel free to correct me on that but as, as I looked it up, I, you know, I, I found a little Facebook page of the War Branch out there, and it, it saw little comments on the Facebook of you know, talking about things and it, it, all out there in English. I, I didn't realize, I, I didn't realize these communities existed or, or, or were there, and I just appreciate seeing you guys out there listening very to the show. Cool. It's very cool. And again, like I just want to really quick also just remind everybody. Um, we have our um, email address set up hi at weeklydeepdive.com for um, any questions or comments or anything, or even if you just want to say hi from some remote place around the world that's, that, y- that you happen to be listening to this, that's, we, we, always, we always appreciate any feedback, so thank you. Yeah, we'd love to hear your stories. All right, starting off, we're in Doctrine and Covenants, sections 23 through 26, and 23 is kind of a smaller section. They're talking about uh, a few individuals and how they're not under condemnation. And as I was reading this, you know, verse one, behold, I speak unto you, Oliver, a few words, behold, thou art blessed and thou art under no condemnation, but beware of pride, lest thou should enter into temptation. And condemnation was kind of an interesting word for me. And it seems like an Old Testament word, like condemnation to be damned or condemned. And, and I tried to find some examples of this in the scriptures and I came up blank in the Old Testament. This, this word does not show up at all in really? the Old Testament. Yeah. It's a New Testament word, hmm. interesting enough. And, and usually we're associating the New Testament with, with love and kindness, but, but condemnation here, and, and trying to understand con meaning with, uh, da- damned, to be, to be damned, with damned, or condemnation. It's a legal term, and it means to be found at fault. So if you're condemned, you're condemned to die, you're condemned of six months hard labor, whatever you're condemned to, it's typically speaking of in, in legal terms. And they're saying here that you have no condemnation or there's there's nothing that you have been judged of and in, in found guilty of, if you will. And these legal terms, there is some connection in the Old Testament because the word Satan um, is the Hebrew word for prosecuting attorney. Mm-hmm. 
and we refer to this guy as our adversary, and you've got this idea that the prosecuting attorney is looking for things to condemn you with, and it's the judge who's going to condemn you, and, and there's, he's looking for fault and trying to accuse you of your faults, trying to get you to, con- to, to commit faults or bring these faults and accusations up against the Lord and saying, he can't be one of yours, he's not following you. These are the, some of the things that he's doing, and so that the Lord will condemn or, or judge you. Mm. So if you've got a prosecuting attorney and you've got God, then who's on your side? You've got you've got Christ almost acting as your advocate or your defense attorney, who's looking for examples where where those actions have been um, mitigated. And it's, it's I don't know for whatever reason it was just kind of neat for me to see all of these legal terms and how this all plays out and put perspective on what are we doing to to come out innocent in the end in in, in a case where Satan is the accuser. And in these cases, they've got to be feeling pretty good because it's saying you are under no condemnation. There is nothing that would convict you in a court of law of not being worthy of of receiving my inheritance. It's, it's got to be a good feeling. As he's talking to them, first he's talking to Oliver, says you're under no condemnation. Then he speaks into Hiram. He says he's under no condemnation. Thy heart is open, thy tongue is loosed, and thy calling and exhortations to strengthen the church continually. And there's something interesting here that they say in the verses of Hiram and Joseph Smith Sr. that they don't say in the other verses. And they say, wherefore, thy duty is unto the church forever, and this because of thy family. So this it's not something that you're saying to Oliver. It's not something that you're saying to even Samuel Smith. If we go into verse 4, behold, I speak a few words unto you, Samuel, for thou art also under no condemnation. And thy calling is exhortation and to strengthen the church, and thou art not as yet called to preach before the world. Amen. So why does Hiram get it? Why does Joseph Smith Sr. get it? But why is Samuel not given that same exhortation? He's part of the same family. He's Joseph Smith's younger brother. Uh, Why is the Lord saying, your calling is unto the church and this because of your family forever for those two? And I, I, I feel like the response here is that the patriarchal order or that Joseph Smith Sr. was a patriarch and the patriarch, being a patriarch, was a lifetime calling. And after Joseph Smith Sr. was done being the patriarch, well, then Hiram Smith became the patriarch. And then you had this line of patriarchs that, for the most part, came from Hiram Smith's line. And being a patriarch usually involved the firstborn son or the eldest son would become the next patriarch. And it's because of their family that this was going to be a standing position, almost kind of like the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood. So it's kind of neat that they mentioned that there. This is even before they're called to those callings, but, but the Lord... He's demonstrating here his knowledge, his foreknowledge of what's to come and and what their position is going to be, even before they know what it's going to be. And interesting enough on this, I wonder, do you guys realize that the church did have a presiding patriarch for a while? So not just the stake patriarch and not someone just gives you your patriarchal blessing, but the church itself had a presiding patriarch Mm. And the presiding patriarch was sustained as a prophet, seer, and revelator, just Wild. like the apostles and the prophet was. Yeah, this was the case all the way up until 1979. For the most part, it came from Hiram Smith's line, but there were a few interruptions in there. There were a few a few times they didn't have somebody in that line filling that position or temporarily acting in that position. But then it came to a part where the church said, you know, this is not a this is not a position that we need anymore. They let the patriarch still be patriarch, but they stopped sustaining him as prophet, seer, and revelator, and then they didn't call a new patriarch to fill his spot. Hmm. So, a little interesting history there. It's cool. Next, Samuel. When when uh, There's not a lot of mention of Samuel in the Doctrine and Covenants or anything that we hear of. We, we've, we've heard of Hiram Smith. We've heard of Joseph Smith. And we even know a little bit about Alvin, him being the oldest brother that, that died early. But I don't know that we hear a ton about Samuel. And he was a pretty interesting guy. He was a very faithful guy. And in fact, he um, he was with the saints after they were delivered by a snowstorm that saved them from their enemies. Thick cloud rolled in. They were able to escape. 
But as they were escaping and running and hiding, they were out of food. They didn't have any provisions. And they looked to Samuel as a leader and said, Samuel, prophesy. Tell us, tell us some words of comfort. And he prophesied that, that their families were well. And he also prophesied that they would be able to find food the very next day and that they would be fed. Just like the Lord provided food for Israel, he would provide food for them. And at this point in time, these guys were living off of tree bark and flower blossoms, right? They were starving. And, and the very next day, his prophecy came true as they stumbled into a camp of Native Americans that took him in and fed him bread and, and made sure they were doing okay. So he was an interesting guy, and uh, he died within a month of Joseph and Hiram. It was just got to be pretty hard for, for his mother, Lucy, Smack Smith, Lucy Mack Smith, who survived all three of her sons. She, you know, to lose Joseph and Hiram at Carthage Jail, and then less than a month later, Samuel Smith to contract the fever and get sick and, and end up dying as well. But he was an interesting guy, and the Lord does speak that he's, he's under no condemnation, and he's called to exhort and strengthen the church. He was at this point not yet called to, to preach before the world, but he does preach later on. Then we have a little bit of words to Joseph Smith Sr., and... Uh, as we said, giving him this 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 duty as to the exhortation and to strengthen the church, and uh, also that that is his duty from henceforth and forever. Joseph Knight. Now this is this is something I do find a little bit interesting. He says, "By these words, let's see. Behold, I manifest unto you, Joseph Knight, by these words that you must take up your cross." And that's something we hear in the New Testament all the time. Take up your cross and come follow me. And what what does it mean to take up your cross? And we don't have a lot of elaboration. We don't have Jesus saying, here, let me explain to you what it means by take up your cross and come follow me. He just says, take up your cross and kind of leaves it to our imagination. But in this revelation, we do get a peek when he says, by these words that you must take up your cross in the which, or in the in this way, you must pray vocally before the world as well as in secret. Hmm. And I think that's something that's interesting. We we pray very well in our minds and, and quietly we pray all the time, I think. But I think it does give us a little bit of embarrassment or a little bit of hesitancy to pray publicly. And you think about what it means to pick up your cross. And Christ, as he's picking up his cross, is walking through crowded streets and being shamed publicly. Hmm. So do we feel shame when, when we're praying in public? I don't, I don't think we feel a lot of shame when we're praying in public in like a sacrament meeting if someone asks us to pray or if we're praying at a meeting where we've been asked to pray. But where I think we might feel a little bit of shame like the world's looking at us and judging us is if we're sitting down at a restaurant about ready to eat dinner and we stop and pray publicly. Is that what he's talking about here? I don't know. Nate, I'd See, be... I, I, I think that that... I feel like that that's maybe maybe part of it but might feel a kind of a very kind of on the nose and literal for what i feel like it's trying to say in this which is like you said like when christ was was carrying his cross like you just said you know going through you know crowded streets of people spitting at him and yelling at him and stuff and and him him eventually um you know carrying the thing that he was going to die on you know um for all of those people spitting on him and such, by the way, you know, it's, it's intense. But I think that, that it's more than just like, oh, he, what he means is to go and pray in public. And it just feels like it means more, hey, don't be afraid to, don't be afraid of your testimony. Don't be, don't be afraid to live the type of life that a, you know, somebody that has taken upon themselves the name of Christ would, would, you know, live or whatever, right? And so I think it's more than just, hey, I'm going to pray in front of people at a restaurant to show them whatever. And more than anything, it is don't be afraid to, in this world where you might be nervous that people are going to judge you or shame you for, you know, your faith or your religious beliefs, like don't be afraid to, um, you know what I mean? Don't be afraid to, to wear your heart on your sleeve, you know, or your testimony on your sleeve, I guess. Yeah, and it says here, and among your friends and in all places. And I think among your friends, right, The it, it, sometimes as you're all together, maybe it maybe it would be hard to say, you know what, do you mind if we have a prayer, guys, before we do this? Act? And you don't want to be a, 
<laughs> you don't want to be criticized as being like a Pharisee or, or somebody who's doing this for show, but how do you balance that? How how do you find a, a comfortable moment? Or maybe that's comfort's not, maybe that's the point. It's not comfortable to carry your cross in front of a crowd of people. And and how do you do it in a way, in a setting that's going to be appropriate and it's going to convey the response that it wants to convey and yet still, you know, finding a way to bear your cross? Sure. I just, I guess that's, and to that point, like I just, I agree with you, but I also just feel like it's probably using, using, you know, your prayer or, or praying is kind of like a, as like a s- symbolism of a much bigger thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and I I get I guess I'm I just I'm I don't know like I don't know if I'm necessarily going to start openly praying in in a room full of of crowded people at a restaurant only because like I also don't want to be like you said it, it's 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 hard finding that balance of like oh, okay cool is this is this using something that should be sacred and and turning it into hey look at me look how righteous i am at the table with my family you know what i mean like and and part of it is too is like obviously you probably wouldn't be like yelling your prayer across the restaurant but but we shouldn't be doing this i guess if at any point it's it's losing the purpose of it and the sincereness of it that's probably where whatever i don't know I don't know the right answer to this. (laughs) I guess I'm just saying it's like I look at this and I see, you know, pray, and I'm like, okay, that's probably part of what the bigger thing is, which is just like don't be afraid to, you know what I mean? Don't be afraid to talk about your beliefs. Don't be afraid to um, sing about your beliefs, which is also a prayer. Don't be afraid to, you know what I mean? There's just so many things that I feel like are, I don't know. I just feel like it's bigger than just... Hey, pray in restaurants, and and maybe and maybe some settings. You know, just because he says pray in public doesn't mean he's saying pray all the time in public before you eat, or <laughs> yeah, all the exactly. time, right? Maybe maybe there's settings where you're not afraid to say a prayer because you're in a in a, in a tough situation. You're stuck in an elevator with a bunch of people, and you're worried that you're going to be getting out and saying, "Do you mind if I say a prayer or something?" You're yes. praying in public, or and and I'm and I'm always. I'm always intrigued by the the instances where you have somebody score a touchdown in the end zone and and then take a quiet moment or take a knee sure. or pray. You know, you got your Tim Tebow or whatnot, and and there's a balance there, right? Is is the purpose for praying there to really show gratitude to the Lord or to really try to turn people to the Lord, or is it to say, you know, look at me, I'm an amazing. You know, a lot of it does have to do with the attitude that you're bringing into it, and I and I can't help but think, I mean, what what if Christ carrying his cross, doing this in public, when he gets to the hill, spikes the cross and celebratory. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> see, and it's funny because again, like, and 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 here's, I guess, this is the great point. It's funny because, like, I see the dudes that take a knee and 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 do that in the end zone, and like you said, like, I never think to myself, like, oh, they're doing this to prove something. And so that's what's funny is like you and I see, which is I, the point, right? Is that you and I see both of those things very differently, or maybe we don't. I don't know. But like, I agree that that anything, anytime you're doing it to like pump yourself up, you know what I mean? I think you've kind of lost the purpose of it. And I also have no problem with an athlete, especially playing football, who is on the brink of being paralyzed at any given moment. You know what I mean? Taking a moment to be to to give thanks. Oh, I love to see it. And and the thing is, but it's so funny because like in the music world when I'm watching these music awards and somebody goes up there and thanks God for like some heinous tune that they just wrote. I'm like, well, okay, like I don't, I don't know, if, I don't know if Jesus is going like, hey, can you, can you leave me out of this one? You know what I mean? So I, I don't know, but I, but whatever. I guess maybe the bigger point is, is that we need to do what we feel is appropriate to, you know, let our proverbial light so shine. And and I guess I, I this is probably a good chance to always remind myself I probably shouldn't be too quick to judge anybody how how they choose to do that i guess absolutely and and it comes down to you know don't don't be afraid or embarrassed of of the gospel that we have or to show that gospel but but do it appropriately and make sure the reason why you're doing it isn't necessarily calling attention to yourself in fact we're going to talk about this in the next week's episode when we're when we're talking about the sacrament it says you know you can use any kind of bread or water, whatever the case may be, as long as you're doing it with an eye single to God. And I mm. think that's the same point here is, is you can, you can do it in all places. It's, it's okay. 
In fact, don't be ashamed of it. Don't don't be afraid of it. F- feel free to acknowledge God. But when we do acknowledge God, I think we need to do it in in the sense that we are single to His glory. That we're doing it for for us. We're doing it because we love Him and we're trying to praise Him or or honestly give thanks or appreciation yep. to Him, and and not to try to aggrandize ourselves, but but because we do have that that focus on Him. I'm with you. Sweet. Next, we're going to talk about. Um, a little bit of guidance on miracles in section 24, when they're talking about going out and serving missions, and they talk about the miracles that they're going to be seeing and the miracles that they're going to be doing, that the Lord gives them a few little bit of counsels. He says in verse um, verse 13, require not miracles. And and just pausing right there, I, th- I think we've always we, we've heard the stories of like. The missionaries that ran out of gas, and then they prayed that the Lord would convert water into oh, yeah. gasoline and pour it. Which into is the totally tank just and, a myth, <laughs> by the way. Nobody did that. <laughs> right, right, Thank right. Goodness, the, yes, the, I know the what urban you mean. legends that, yes. you, that that go circling around. But but the the point of it is, don't don't be putting yourself in a situation that you require miracles or requiring that God do things for certain reasons. He's giving us a little bit of counsel here, right? Require not miracles, except. I command you, I shall command you. And then he gives a few exceptions to that, except casting out devils, healing the sick, and against poisonous serpents, against deadly poisons. So you can you can cast out devils, heal the sick, and uh, and heal people against poisonous serpents and against deadly poisons. What about poisonous um, spiders? Poisonous spiders, yep, I, I think that qualifies. All right, okay. keep going. <laughs> those I want to make sure that that's in there. He says, those you don't have to wait for him to command you to do, right? Okay. So when he's talking about the miracles that you don't require, except I shall command you, this I think is talking about like moving mountains or or doing things with faith. Like, like I don't know. Have, have you ever thought like as a kid, maybe, maybe because the priesthood or faith, like if the Lord says you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You're like, man, do I have Jedi powers? Can Can I fly? Like, could I do some great miracle? Could I look at that mountain and, and, and have it move and try to test your faith? And I think these are the kind of the miracles that God's saying, those miracles don't happen unless I tell you. And what is usually the common theme with all of those mighty miracles is that they're to serve God's purpose and give glory to him and help his work move along. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 to your point, and I'm just emphasizing the, the thing with all of those miracles is that they're not there to do it f- to prove to us individually like, oh, cool, I, yeah, I guess, I guess it all must be real because I just moved that mountain. Like, things like that, you know, Moses parted the Red Sea, why? Because right? God told him to, That's exactly, right? and it was to save his people from it getting killed. You know what I mean? It's like it's always to serve the greater, the greater purpose. And I don't think missionaries getting stranded in a car without gas is, you know what I mean? It's like... I don't know. I mean, I, I know that it's just an urban legend, but again, like all of those things, it kind of comes back to, once again, is this to serve your, you know, the story of Moses, you know, whacking the rock or whatever to get the water come out, right? Yes. It's like, like one, was he commanded to do that? I don't know. I, it doesn't sound like it. And two, for what purpose was it to serve? And going back to intentions, even as we're talking about prayer, right? If if Moses ends up at the borders of the Red Sea because God told him to go that direction is very different than if Moses says, hey, I want to see a miracle today. That's right. We're going this way. We're going to see what God does to get us out of this situation. Yes. yes. Okay, so those those are those miracles, but there's another type of miracles. And, and these are the miracles where if you look at what these have in common, casting out devils, healing the sick, poisonous serpents, or deadly poisons, they're all to the benefit of somebody who is afflicted. Yes. And in those cases, God's not going to sit there and say, well, let me say, yes, you should. No, let me command you to do that. Wait for me to tell. No, he's saying you don't need to wait for my permission to be doing these miracles. But he does say in verse 14, and these things ye shall not do. So wait a second. I thought he said you could do these without waiting for him to command you. He says, these things you shall not do, except it be required of you by them who desire it, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So it is based a lot of times on the faith of the person and the person believing that God can do it and believing that you're authorized to to perform that action to the point where they desire that of you and, and you need a little bit of faith for the miracle to take place. And and this could take us to a whole discussion on why miracles happen or what miracles and what happens when miracles or what do even work defines and not a miracle. Work. You know what I mean? Like what what is even the boundaries of a miracle versus, you know. Yeah. 
yeah, but to keep it clean for, for now, just saying, I think the Lord is providing here some general instructions. You have different types of miracles. Some miracles you shouldn't be performing unless the Lord is commanding you to do it. Other miracles you should freely be performing, but it should be at the request of the person. You shouldn't be forcing these on people. It should be based the other way around. And a lot of these, again, going back to intention, is are, are we doing this to serve ourselves Are we doing this to have people think that we're great because we can do this? Or are we doing this because we care about the person? We we want to heal them. We want to help them. And we want to turn them to God and realize that this is where the source of the power of the miracle comes from. Good counsel on miracles. Moving to the the dusting off of the feet. Oh, here we go. Oh, boy. I need to make that bumper. I need to make a little bumper so that every time we get come to one of these places, I just can push a button and this thing goes, rum, 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 or something like that. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting one. because in, in, So verse 15, And whatsoever place you shall enter, and they receive you not in my name, you shall leave a cursing instead of a blessing. That seems a little harsh. By casting off the dust of your feet against them is a testimony of cleansing your feet by the wayside. So you've got you've got two different things here. Not just the casting off of the dust of your feet, but the cleansing of the feet. And I think both of these things kind of tie in together. Uh, we talked about this in a previous episode when we talked about the rod of God being the word of God to bless us. But then he says, I'm going to smite you with my rod, being like the beating stick. And, and this idea of this dichotomy, you've got the apostles, Christ, who's washing the feet of the disciples, and then you've got somebody as a form of cursing who's washing their feet or dusting the feet off as a sign that they should be cursed. So it, it does prevent, uh, present another interesting dichotomy. And I wanted to look kind of like the history of this. Where does it come from? And in the New Testament, a lot of the times the Jews, when they would go and visit Gentile cities or be in a Gentile area, this idea that they were the Lord's people and there's this separation. And in, according to the Jews, they were very orderly and there was a lot of separation. And the example is looking at the temple. You have a court of the Gentiles. You have a court of the women. You have a court for, for people that can go on to. You have a court that is only for the priests. And as you get closer and closer, it gets more and more restrictive about who can come in or who cannot come in. And you get to the Holy of Holies and only the high priest can go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, right? So you've got this separation. And they, and they would discuss like, well, what about this? What part of the door is holy? And, and how does that separate? And where mm. it, it, it's kind of interesting how this all worked. And Wait, which part is? Just the inside? <laughs> yeah, well, you'd have to read. I mean, they've got a whole... <laughs> In fact, Donald Perry wrote a... I believe his dissertation was on this, the, the different degrees of holiness and how the Jews would all separate it in the temple. And... and how everything associated with whether this was clean or not clean. And and you had your cleansing rites, what you needed to do if you weren't. So this idea of them dusting off their feet was this was Gentile dirt. Mm. And, and so going back into Israel and Holy Land, they would be dusting themselves off so that they would have that separation so that they wouldn't be bringing the Gentile back in with themselves. So this idea of, of shaking off what belonged to them and keeping what belonged to you and separating it out was was kind of... How, how it was viewed as in the New Testament. It's awesome. That's great insight on that. But if you take it back to the Old Testament, it's a little bit different. And, and this is where I like to go with this, because the Lord says in the New Testament, he says, dust off your feet and it shall be worse for that city than it shall be for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That, that's the city that they keep referencing, the cities from Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. And, and those cities weren't even the names of those cities back then. Sodom and Gomorrah means like a heap pile and waste. Like that's what they called them after they were destroyed. They never used the names that, of the cities from before they were destroyed. But the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, we go back to right before that city was destroyed, Abraham is sitting out in the desert and strangers come to go visit him. And as they come to visit him, how does Abraham receive his guests? He tells them to go fetch water and a basin, and then he washes their feet. And and these are people he didn't even know. These were strangers. And you contrast what Abraham does, does right outside of the city and washing the feet of these guests. And then they say, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, whoa, 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 whoa. Would you, would you destroy the city if I find, you know, what if there's a hundred righteous people in here or whatever number he says? And he keeps playing this game to where he gets down. 
no, peradventure, don't be, don't be angry at me, O Lord, but peradventure we find one righteous person, will you yeah. save the city, right? And so the angel says, you know, we'll save the city for, for one man's sake or whatever the case. They go into the city and then contrast how they received their guests in, in Sodom and Gomorrah versus how Abraham received his guests. They're the same people, the same messengers. Abraham receives them by washing their feet. They receive them by trying to abuse them. And in Ezekiel 16, the Lord talks about the, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. A lot of times we associate this with, with sexual sin, but in, in Ezekiel, they say the sins were, they didn't take care of the fatherless. They didn't take care of the stranger. They treated the strangers poorly. And, and that's what you see happen here. And yeah, they did have the family of Lot, but they pull them out. Now there's no righteous people left in the city. The city gets destroyed. And, and we have that story. And I want to use that story because that's what the Lord's referencing. It will be worse for the city than it would be for Sodom and Gomorrah if, if you're dusting or washing your feet off. So I, I look at this idea of washing your feet. And it's a, you're going into this house looking for hospitality and they don't give you any. They don't wash your feet to where you're left to where you have to wash your feet yourself. Kind of a sign of they didn't, they didn't treat me well. I had to take care of myself. Mm. And, and, and this idea of rejecting the city. But part of me thinks, well, first off, in the early days of the church, I think, I think this cursing was, was warranted. You, you look at how the saints were persecuted. You, you look at how people would come in to destroy the dams that they had built to be able to baptize people to try to frustrate the work. You look at the way property was stolen. You look at the way women were treated, forcing women and children to to walk through the snow barefoot, bleeding, their feet bleeding. You want to talk about washing feet or taking care of someone's feet. What are you doing when you force a family of women and children to cross the snow barefoot at night? This this was the hospitality that they were receiving from the from the people that were supposed to be their friends, and they were viewed as strangers among the society, right? They, they were alienated, and they were rejected by their local government. They were rejected by the state government. They were rejected by the federal government. And I think, I think the Lord did, in turn, curse America for what happened at that time. You look at, you look at Abraham's family lot and everyone being brought out of Sodom and Gomorrah and then the city being destroyed. I look at that as just as soon as the saints are excavated from the United States and pulled into Utah in the last migrants have left, the civil war breaks out, and this nasty, huge war destroys a nation and changes it fundamentally to now the, the federal government has power to step in, to free the slaves, to, to stop the, the mob violence, the lynching, the, the terrible things, the atrocities that were happening at that time period. Because they were rejecting strangers, because you would lynch people that you didn't know, because of mob violence, and this extends much further than just the LDS faith, right? We look at the way that the blacks were treated with slavery. We look at the way anyone that differed from your opinion or strangers that you didn't like, didn't fit into your mold or your caste, were just rejected. And there was nothing the federal government could do because it was a state's rights issue. When Joseph Smith went to Martin Van Buren, the president, and said, I need your help, Martin Van Buren said, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. This is a state's rights thing. And... And, and so I think, to an extent, a lot of this was warranted, that, that there was some cursing associated with the way the saints were being treated. But on the other extreme, I think that this has been carried. You've got stories of a chieftain in Samoa that took missionaries in, and he said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with your, your message, but I think you guys are incredible to, to be serving your God, to be doing what you believe, to be out here on a mission. I, I, I think it's commendable. I want to have a feast in your honor. We're going to invite you in and bring everybody out and kind of just celebrate and what you're doing, even if I don't agree with your message. And the missionaries turned them down and, and said, you know what, you're rejecting our message. And they washed their feet right in front of the guy. And, and he was so offended, he, he said, don't come back. I, I think in these cases we have some excesses going in the wrong direction. I think what the Lord gave it in the original purpose has been taken out of context. 
And, and I want to reference that with, with Abraham versus these missionaries. When you look at Abraham and says, per adventure, I find one righteous person. Here was a guy that was willing to wash the feet of a stranger. And he was so hesitant to wash his own feet of the sins of a city that sat right next to him. That, that he would say, what, if I, what can I do to save that city? Look at, in contrast, Jonah. Jonah gets swallowed by the well because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, right? He's, he's kind of got issues with the place in the first place. But when he goes, the guy becomes the greatest missionary of all the Old Testament. He converts the king of Nineveh to the point where the king commands not just all the people to fast. So, so Jonah's saying, if you don't repent, you will be destroyed. And Jonah goes up into the mountain, finds a nice little shade tree, and, and sticks around because he can't wait to see the fireworks. He wants to see Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants to see this destruction happen. And the king says, we're doomed. What if we can change the Lord's mind about us? What if we were to repent? And he doesn't just order that all of the people fast as a king, but he orders that all of the animals, the animals be put yeah. in, in sackcloth as well. That's right. and, and this guy just saved a whole city, right? You would think that he would be redeemed. He would be rejoicing, like, "Hey, this is this is great missionary work," but he's he's so upset that the Lord doesn't destroy this people. He says, "What gives? Why? Yeah, why?" Exactly. He's 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 upset about it, and I think that's like the the early missionaries that that were a little over anxious to dust their feet. Yes. Lord, why aren't you punishing these people? Why aren't you destroying them? Why isn't this t- city turning like Sodom and Gomorrah? And so the Lord smites his little shade tree and kills it. And then Jonah's complaining, oh, now you've killed my shade tree. (laughs) And the Lord says, why do you care more about a tree than you do an entire city? That's right. It's funny because I don't think that's just like ancient missionaries. You know what I mean? Like, unfortunately, I think sometimes just even now, missionaries in general, at least when I was doing the thing, you know, there are times where it's just like, yeah, okay, these people were jerks to us, and that's not a problem, and it sucks, but like, you know, cool, move on, you know? But it is funny because even even you would still kind of, hope, mostly jokingly, but be like, oh, man, we should we should just dust our feet and move out. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, clearly clearly, you, you are missing the point of us being out here, and that's to love people, you know, first and foremost, and, and, and help them know that we love them. And... If they're not ready for that, then that's that's life, you know. Like that doesn't, and even then, it doesn't mean they're bad people, even, right? Of course, it doesn't mean that, right? So, it is funny. It's funny you say that. It's like, yeah, the ancient, like the the example you gave. But I'm like, I don't know if it, if it's you know changed that much, unfortunately. Well, I think the dusting of the feet is more of a challenge for the missionary than it is for the the city. Like, what do you mm. learn about somebody if you're telling them? Hey, it, it's almost like the story, you know, the story of like, if you press the red button, somebody somewhere else is going yes, to die, yeah. but, but you'll right? like who, who would feel justified hitting that button. If the Lord's telling you it's going to be worse for these people than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah and Sodom and Gomorrah, they got wiped out fire and brimstone. Why would you ever wash your feet? Yeah, it's true. And, and you look at Abinadi. Who, who got rejected and cast out. And what does he do? He goes back in in disguise. Or you get Alma and Almelech. And, and, and what happens if Abinadi doesn't go in? Think, think again. Peradventure, I find one righteous man. Because of Abinadi coming back and, and testifying, you get Alma, the, the, you know, the one righteous man that, that all of a sudden a whole community is born, a whole seed is planted. Do you love the people enough to put up with some of this stuff and, and not desire for their destruction? So when the Lord's giving you a destruction button, I think it proves more about the the heart and the preparation of the missionary and what his focus is. Is he there because he loves the people or is he there because he wants to damn the people? He wants to condemn them. Well, you look at Moses and and all the time, I'm always just like, man, I don't know how Moses had any patience whatsoever with the whiny, (laughs) complaining children of Israel that would have, I would have just been like, you know what, never mind. But it's funny because like we read in the Old Testament, the Lord's like, okay, Moses, it's time. I'm done with these dudes. Like I can't even stand them anymore. And Moses like, hold on. (laughs) He does. He does. I mean, like Moses, Moses is like, hold on a minute. I know. Trust me, they bug me too. <laughs> and, and Moses tries to intercede for him, like, like, and 
Ultimately, is that not what we're trying to do is be like Christ? And what did Christ do when he says, I will suffer their sins. I will pay their, because I believe that they will change. I believe I want to love them enough to help them change. And, And who do we, that's why I say it's more a test for the missionary than anything. Are we going to be putting ourselves on the line because we love these people that much, or are we just so willing to see them done and destroyed that that's the end of it? Well, yeah, and and obviously that's just a misunderstanding of one's purpose. I mean, what is what you're saying, and I totally agree. Yeah, let's. Uh, we're gonna run out of time if I keep this going. Let's uh, let's talk about Emma Smith. Okay, um, she's she's called as a, a an elect lady. It, it's very interesting. The the poor woman. She just got baptized by Oliver Cowdery, and. Um, and, and she has to hold off being sustained uh, or being confirmed and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost because Joseph Smith got arrested. Um, he got arrested for, for of all things, um, treasure hunting and, and, and purporting to know where treasure was. He, he ends up being acquitted and, and the case is dismissed and he's able to return. But as he returns and he, he's, he's, he, he writes a revelation to her um, about the Lord, uh, the Lord speaks to her and what really stands out to me in verse 7, thou shalt be ordained under his hand, talking about Joseph Smith, and it's talking about Emma's shall be ordained under Joseph Smith's hand to expound the scriptures and to exhort the church according as it shall be given thee by my spirit. And you don't see a lot of that in, in these times. Ministers were always male. And here you have a female being called to expound the scriptures and to exhort the church. It's kind of revolutionary. It's a big deal. Emma Smith was very well educated. Um, she she was more educated than any of her siblings. She was more educated than Joseph Smith. She was called to be his scribe. Uh, very bright, very intelligent. And the Lord is giving her responsibility to exhort and expound in the church. And and not just that, but he's also going to go on to, to call her to put the hymn book together. Right? The, the first hymnal. And, and she does. She puts not just one, but she puts three hymnals together. The, the first hymnal that she puts together is about 90 hymns. And then later on, she puts a, a more complete hymnal together, 304 hymns. And in the first hymnal, she, she doesn't have any music. It's just it's just words. The saints can come together and sing. And I know, I know Nate, you've got, you're, you're kind of a, more of an expert in this field than I am. What is so significant about music in the church? Why is the Lord making a big deal of this, and why is this such an important call for Emma? Um, I, I'm, I don't know if I can speak to why this is such an important call for Emma, but I will say um, that that it's that we talk a lot about um, harmony in um, in a lot of the scriptures. You see things, you see things, something in harmony with something else, and that's always kind of an interesting. Uh, choice of words, right? Because in a lot of times when we see those things, you don't see it necessarily in, in context or relationship to music, right? Are our lives in harmony with the teachings of the church or whatever? You know what I mean? It's like you hear that word used a lot, but I think that there's something that's, that's kind of incredibly profound about, about um, the way that certain things work together. And when we're taught that, you know, singing singing hymns and music is is like a prayer to me it's like a supercharged prayer because what you're doing is you're harmonizing you're harmonizing quite literally lyric with music in in a way that you and an entire group of people can all be singing in unison and in harmony with each other and and I've I guess I always kind of wondered why um why it for me it always felt different to hear a prayer in the form of a song or to to hear Motab singing something during conference and that's when I'm like losing it you know and I think it's because there's a there's a profound strength in a group of people being able to do something together or being able to worship together and and it's why you know fasting for a, a purpose and having a lot of people people all fasting for a purpose that's that's a lot of people in harmony and not discord right or or you have people that um have their name on on a prayer roll at the temple it's like anytime you can find something that that 
so many people from all different places, all different experiences can kind of come together and be on the same page and together. There's just power in that, man. Absolutely. And the Lord says it in verse 12, right? For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart. There's something moving about music, something powerful that you're right. You feel strong emotions. Even if the music is not necessarily uplifting uplifting music, you can still feel strong emotions. It can stoke you up. It can, it can create rage. It can create inspiration. It can, there's a reason why. In, in war, they would have soldiers that would carry drums instead of guns. Why why would you sacrifice a gun in order to just carry a drum and beat on it if, if it didn't inspire and stir up? or There's just something about that. Well, in different music, obviously, inspires different emotions and things too, right? Uh-huh. Like, you, you wouldn't have that drummer out there going like, da-da-da-da-da-da, shoot, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's like, you have that guy out there, you know, it's like because it's like, oh, cool! Like that's the the speed of it and whatever. It's like in the and the the energy of it's like it gets you fired up, right? And and it's funny because I, I uh, when you listen to um, when you listen to something that has these gorgeous harmonies that work together, and again, like even that, I think is kind of like the thing that that you could spend so much time really diving into the the science behind that, and that is. And, and it's funny because I, I think my mission president, of all people who I don't think was super musical, said, you know, melody is temporal and harmony is like spiritual. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's kind of an interesting thing to say. But but there, but the, the idea is, is that somebody can be singing a, a, a completely different set of notes than somebody else, but they work so seamlessly together that that adds energy and depth and and um, power to what it is that they're doing, even if it's different notes that they're singing, right? And then it's like if you apply this to the people that come to church on Sunday, right? If you, I'm just saying it's like you, if you apply it, there's so many things that you can apply that to. The idea that you don't have to be doing things exactly the same way to have them work in harmony together, right? And... And and what we need to be most in harmony with is what the spirit, yeah. And so and so again, it's like I, I don't know, man. I just feel like there's such a profound lesson in that juxtapose that against discord, right? Or things that don't work together. And what what physically does that invoke in you, right? It's like that it, it invokes anxiety, and it invokes tension, and and darkness and things right and again like there is a place for that in this world you know and and i get it but with god and when when he talks about harmony it's because when things work well together scientifically your brain does different things right yes and and you and you feel physically different and that is again like there's just something so powerful when you see motab with however many people they have singing all not singing exactly the same pitch. Not all singing the same notes even, right? But singing the same words and having that all be the thing that that builds into this thing where, where again, just as for me at least as a listener, I'm just like, cool, I might get more out of that every single conference than I do any of the talks. And I get a, a lot out of the talks too, but I guess I'm just saying like, those are, those are the moments where I'm just like, okay, we're all on the same page here. And when it swells and you feel it just kind of swell in yourself and you're, 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 you, you feel in, I don't know, it's, you're right, it's incredible. And, and I think about art. They, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. And I think music's the same thing. There's so much that can be communicated with a feeling that, that words don't quite describe or, or fall short of being able to actually capture it all. Some of the meaning and the symbolism and everything that can be conveyed with a little bit of art is is worth more than what you can convey with a bunch of lectures or, or, or discussions on the same subject. All right, last, um, we, we, we have a little bit of a section that talks about by common consent. Um, well, we're not going to dive into this as much as, as, as what maybe we would hope, but even in Exodus 
chapters uh, one through um, one through eight, as the Lord is. Let, let's just say this: when we're talking about common consent in the church, it's not to say that we're a democracy and that we're voting in a prophet to do this and and this to do that, and that everybody gets a say in how this all works. Uh, Brigham Young described it saying that the prophet is called of God, and so he's accountable to God. But as members of the church, they're also subject to the laws of the church. And a lot of the things, they're accountable to God for the decisions that they're making, but they're also part of this church, and and they're accountable to the laws of the church that are created in the order of the church, and, and they do bring things up for sustaining vote. And we say here, it's not by unanimous consent, but by common consent. And, and it's okay if, if you have somebody that doesn't agree or someone that doesn't do, it doesn't quite feel the same way, but by common consent, we're trying to do this, that we all have a part and a, and a role to play. And maybe something that's interesting is to say that the plan to come here and the plan of salvation and God's plan, God didn't just say, hey guys, you're going to go do this now. He said, this is a plan that I have for you to progress. How would you like to go about doing this? What And, and by common consent, two-thirds majority, this, this whole plan was, was created and Christ atoned and, and died for our sins by common consent. And, and the whole purpose was to not take agency away. And by common consent means that there's going to be some things in the church that, that maybe we don't quite agree with or we don't quite understand or things that don't quite fit with how we see things, but we're doing things not by God dictating every little thing that we do, but by common consent as we grow, as we learn, and as we do the best we can. And ultimately, the prophet is accountable to God because he's called of God. But we're also responsible to sustain the Lord's prophet because whether it's by his voice or God's voice, it is the same and will be accountable to God for how we followed that prophet and how we did what God wanted us to do as we as we try to to navigate these waters by common consent. I like it. I like that it's not by unanimous consent. Yes. Or democratic consent. <laughs> like I'm just like I mean, like, I, I, your point is incredibly well taken, and I think it's, I think it's good to, you know, re, re, be reminded of that it's not, again, it's not, it's not the church's responsibility to try to to meet the needs of every single person inside, and, but at the same time, like, yeah, there are things that may take time for me to be able to understand that I don't right now, you know, but, but like you said, I. I I understand that it's not up to me to dictate the rules of the church, you know, and that and that if I have if I'm having questions or issues with something that it's a good opportunity for me to try to figure that out. Yes. And even looking, I guess where I was going with Moses and Exodus is that even though he received the commandments from the finger of God, even though God told him everything, he brought it back to the people for the voice of the people to accept those things. And mm. you look at King Benjamin too, right? He he received these commandments from God and he's going he's gonna to restructure the entire government of how these Nephites were governed, but he brings it to the people and 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 gets their common consent as he moves forward with this plan. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing because where does where's the line? Because like heavenly father you know in the in the pre-earth life, right? Says here's the plan and I'm presenting it to you to to um you know say yes or no, right? But I guess that that it's one third said no. But at the end of the day, like the plan wasn't going to change if two thirds said no, right? That's a good question. I guess I guess I'm just saying, like, because to, to me, it's like this is, and this is where this is where again, like, I think that it's healthy to have this. It's it's healthy to have this conversation because because what if Heavenly Father wasn't presenting the plan to say, well, and then you can all vote and tell me that we're not going to do this. So even though Satan did come and present an alternative and wanted the glory and the entire thing and was and was able to persuade I mean a massive chunk of people, right? Of the hosts of heaven, a third of the hosts of heaven to go with him. I I guess I'm just wondering what is it what's the difference between sustaining a plan and having the a plan presented to us to sustain versus to vote on to decide whether we're going to do it or not, because it feels like from the beginning of time, it's not a democracy, and it's not something that we 
that we are given the chance to vote on necessarily of who's called to be the prophet, but we are given the opportunity to sustain who is called to be the prophet. You know what I mean? I guess where's, where's the distinction between those two? That's a great question. And, and where is that distinction? And what, I mean, we're expected to follow God and we're accountable for how we follow him. And, and I guess that's what the prophet is saying is he is acting as if he is the Lord. And, and there, is, there is a line, right? When the Lord says, and when my people are full of iniquity, when they reach that tipping point, he doesn't allow their agency to keep going to screw up the agency of everyone else. Exactly. He steps in with the flood, right? He steps in with the Canaanites getting wiped out when Israel comes back. So I guess I'm wondering. So I like this, and I and again I I'm not I, I I just I love I love thinking through some of these things too because because I I know that for a lot of people inside or outside of the church things like this can be can can get people very hung up right and and for me it's like it's it's I know for me I've just changed the way that I personally look at at even by common consent. Or, or what is what is my purpose when I, or what what is the purpose of me being given the opportunity to sustain a prophet? And it's interesting because it it turns less about me giving my vote of approval for something, and way more for a chance for me to do some self reflection and a chance for me to personally go. I'm being given the opportunity to reaffirm things that I believe in. Do I believe, do I sustain and believe that this is a called prophet of God? Not am I voting on whether, you know what I mean? Not am I voting on whether he gets to be the prophet or not. And, and again, like, and I know that this comes down to sometimes to even stake and ward callings, right? Like we've all probably been in at least one meeting where when they say, you know, all, all, all those who sustain this calling, raise your hand, all those who oppose this calling, raise their hand. And, and there's been times that there's been legitimate reasons that people oppose a calling and and the process, as far as I understand, is you know somebody from the stake or from the ward goes and talks to that person, and and makes sure that they understand why that person is opposing the calling. And if it is something that jeopardizes the the calling, they can address that. But but if it's just a personal beef with that person, it, it's it's not up to that person to necessarily change the outcome of that calling. It's more a chance, hopefully, maybe for a time, then to talk to that person and be like, "Is this about you, and not a, even about the person being called?" You know, what I mean, it's like there's so many things that I guess I look at this and I go, "I just wonder." Some t- and and there are things that that should we should absolutely know where our tithing money's going. There are things, you know what I mean. There are yes. certainly things that, that that should be accountable, um, or that we should be be at least transparent and understand. And even then. It's like when I pay my tithing money, it's that that is me giving my consent. That's me giving my consent at that point for the church to do with it what it is, right? It's it's not me giving the money and saying, "Okay, now tell me what you're going to do with this before before you spend it." When when I give that when I when I my wife, I should say, because she's better at it than I am, when she writes that check, <laughs> that is us that is us giving our consent to use that money in the way and, and in the things that the leaders of this church see fit. I know there's a lot of talking, but I guess I'm, uh, to me the only reason is because like, I just know that this can be such a confusing thing. It's like, where is that line between sustaining somebody and voting for somebody? And for me, I look at the chances to sustain leaders of the church and to sustain and, and to, and to um, sustain their use of our tithing money and resources and things like that I look at that as I've just changed the way I've looked at it. It's a chance for me to go, cool. Do do I believe this? Do I do I have a testimony of these people that are that are going to be using this? Because if so, I don't I don't need to be I don't need to be counseled every time a penny gets spent. And and I think this I think this is also a way of, of the Lord showing His people that He doesn't want us to just be blind leading the blind or, or, or just doing things because everyone else is doing Absolutely. it, right? He wants us to be informed. He wants us to understand. He wants us to ultimately come to him and know that this is a relationship with him. And I think it's important in Doctrine and Covenants section 18, he makes a distinction between my church, 
my gospel, and my rock. A rock is something that, that is immovable. Christ, revelation, those things are not going to change, and we are anchored to him, and he wants us to come to him. The church is the way that helps us to come to him, but it's not his rock. And and sometimes the church might offend people inadvertently or advertently. Christ isn't the bishop. Christ isn't the stake president. Christ isn't the one who's calling or teaching class. It's it's us that he's allowing to participate. And there's something beautiful about that and, and giving us the responsibility to do his work. But as we are imperfect, the church is much more fluid than than the rock. And we've got to understand that we are anchored to the rock. We are anchored to Christ. And we know that the the church is not a perfect body of Christ, but we try. We try our best and we try to sustain each other. And and we, you know, maybe we turn a blind eye and not be so critical to other people as they're trying to do their best in the calling, but understand that we do that in hopes that people might not be so critical of us as we try our best. Because we might not say it right when we're when we're doing things, we might not call the right person or say the right words as we're trying to to perform an ordinance or give a blessing or, you know, maybe we don't get it right. But the thing is, there is a difference between the church and the rock. And, and some things change and some things don't. And at the end of the day, when things do change, we've got to understand what's still solid and what, what we're anchored to, despite it all. Amen, brother. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we're going to be talking Doctrine and Covenants sections 20, let's see, 7 and 28. It's going to talk about sacrament and uh, replacing the wine with water a little bit there. Awesome. Well, until next week. See ya. See ya.